Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, January the 31st, the last Sunday of January. We are going to continue in looking at, or pick back up, I should say, looking at Colossians chapter 1. This week we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20. And just a disclaimer, I am uh, recording this in my home today, and so the audio quality will not be um, the same that it has been, but hopefully we'll get back to it uh, soon. So here we go. We're going to start with reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus is the reason. It's what we're going to be looking at today. You know, most scholars feel that this incredible description of Jesus found in verses 15 through 20 of Colossians 1 represents an early uh, hymn, which Paul is quoting. These verses may represent the very first of all Christmas carols, if, if so. And, and if so, it, it's, it's a hymn of two stanzas. The first concerns Jesus as Lord of creation, um, the material universe, all the forces at work within it. Uh, and then the second stanza speaks of Jesus as Lord of the new creation, the new humanity. We don't have the tune for the hymn, but we still have these words which focus upon our Lord's overall supremacy. Here are Paul's words. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's Colossians 1.18. The church, of course, is the new creation. It is, it's, it is healthy to remind ourselves of that. The church is something eternally new, which the world has never seen before. It is quite different from any other organization or organism. It, it's a sad thing to observe the loss of this concept among, among believers. A, a widespread concept is that the church is a religious country club, rather, op operated for the enjoyment and the benefit of the members. And it makes its own rules and exists for its own purpose. That is a far cry from the New Testament description of the church. Others look upon the church as a collection of emotional misfits who are, are waiting for kind of the, the first bus to glory, so to speak. And then there are those, like the Colossians, who are a group of eager, beaver, religious fanatics running after every new doctrine that comes along, especially if it offers a good feeling and has a sense of magic and mystery about it. But here Paul corrects these false ideas and declares that Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. Paul relates the two together as a head and trunk relate in a physical body. This is one of the most important statements in the New Testament about the church. God has actually given us a model to carry around with us, our, our own body, so that we may understand how the church is to function. The church is the body. We, we all have bodies. We can understand this. I, I can understand this as I've been uh, sort of laid up here for about two weeks because of an injury to my body. 
The church has a head. We we all do have heads. So, so to understand the church and how it should function, think about your own body and how it functions. If you stand in front of a mirror, you'll notice, I hope, that there are two divisions of the body. The, the, the knob up on top with more or less hair, we'll call that the head. It is the control center of the body. And then the rest of the body with its appendages of arms and legs, etc., is, is all part of the trunk. That is a body, and the head runs the body. Think what would happen to your body if someone removed your head. A chicken with its head cut off acts very strangely. It does not simply quietly die, but it jumps and runs around out of control for a minute or two before it finally does. And and churches that lose their awareness of the head are like that. They, they, they go out of control. They do not know what to do. They, they, they run about and become involved in things that they ought not to have anything to do with. They have, for all practical purposes, lost their head. And that is the trouble that we find in Colossae. In chapter 2, Paul says they have lost connection to the head. It is essential, therefore, that a church must have its head in place and functioning, supplying direction, maintaining order, giving it health, solving its difficulties, coordinating its activities, supplying every single member its own kind of life. And that is what your physical head does. And that is what Jesus, as head of the body, desires to do. And this has to find application on an individual basis. And, and oftentimes we fail to see that a church consists of individuals. We are the church. It cannot act as a corporate body. Um, very often it is not expected to. Yet because we have false concepts of the church, we, we often expect the corporation to act for us. But Christ's body is not designed that way. Each individual is directly related to the head. It is, it is he or she who should direct each of us in our activities through the week. That is, that is where the church truly functions. Not necessarily here on a Sunday morning in a worship service. Here is where the church is taught by Jesus, right? Here is where we learn how to function. But we actually function away from here, in our homes, with our friends, at, at our work. There, in those places, we must relate directly to the head, expecting him to open doors, provide energy, uh, give us wisdom, comfort, forgiveness. And that is where the church touches culture, society on every side. Yet, despite the fact that we are to function as individuals, we must never forget that we belong to the whole, not only this local body, not Banneron Christian Fellowship, but the whole body of Christ all over the world. We are related to one another. This marvelous mystery of relationship constitutes one of the most exciting things in the world today. And when the church functions properly, it is far and away the most powerfully effective body on earth. And that is what Jesus means when he said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. As individuals, we must remember that our part is to respond to personal direction from the head, to do as he says and obey his word. So now Paul tells us in, in two incredibly amazing descriptive phrases exactly why Jesus is the head of the body. First, he says, he is the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the church. He is the one from whom the church gets its life. There's several 
beginnings in Scripture. The Bible opens on that note. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and on earth. But that is not the beginning referred to here. There's another beginning, so to speak, in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. That goes back even before creation. But that's not the beginning spoken of here either. The beginning here is the same one which John speaks of in his letter. We know him who was from the beginning. He's referring to the beginning of the church. When the disciples saw Jesus, when they touched him, handled him, from the risen life of Jesus flows this new life of the church. And that's what Paul teaches us very clearly in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away and all new things have become. We're a part of the new humanity that God is bringing forth upon earth, a humanity that is bought with a price. We are not our own. We are, we are bought with a price. Remember, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made righteousness of God in him. And this should remind us of that simple and, and, and probably misunderstood parable that Jesus told among several others. In, in Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I think sometimes that parable has been interpreted to mean that that Jesus is the pearl of great price, that, that when we see what a valuable person he is, we will sell all we have and buy him. But, but that, that's entirely contrary to every other teaching of Scripture. We don't buy God. We cannot purchase him or purchase our salvation in any sense. We have nothing to offer him. We must come, as that old hymn puts it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. No, it is Jesus who is the merchant looking for a fine pearl, and he finds one. It's the church. For it, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The most, ins the most instructive, this is the most instructive if we remember how a pearl is made. A pearl, you know, it starts out a, an irritated oyster. A grain of sand gets under the oyster shell to the oyster it fills like, you know, crackers in the bed, and, and which I'm, again, familiar with this week, and it's very uncomfortable, and the oyster sets about getting rid of it. And, and what does it what, what does it do? Or it, it, it covers this irritating grain of sand, grain of sand with a, this, this beautiful uh, knacker that hardens into this amazing pearl. That's how the church was born. It emerges from the wounded side of Jesus. It was the irritation that we represent by our sinful lives that, that put him to death, and he covers it over and he heals it making it into this beautiful pearl of incredible value. That is the church. That is what Paul is describing here. Jesus himself is the beginning of the church. Well, then secondly, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Many take that to mean that he's the first one ever to be resurrected. And and, and certainly true, the, the resurrection of Jesus is the only resurrection that has ever occurred on this earth. Lazarus and all the others who came back from the dead were simply uh, re resuscitated, if they will. They, they came back to the same life that they had left. Um, we, we may even feel a bit sorry for them because they had to, to come back and take it up again. But Jesus was truly resurrected. He, he was given 
a glorified life. He came from the, the grave a far higher level than he went in. He returned in a glorified body, subject to different laws and governed by different principles. But but that's not what's meant here. That's not that that is what call, Paul calls the first fruits of them that slept. But but here, firstborn means what it does in verse fifteen. We've already seen what it what that it means. The owner, the possessor of the old creation. Here, then, it means the owner, the possessor of the new creation. He is the one who alone possesses the resurrection life that he gives to each of us. And that's what John is saying in his first letter in, in chapter 5, uh, verse 11. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, deathless life, resurrection life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Maybe moral, maybe a nice person, may, but, but you don't possess the life of eternity, the resurrection life of Jesus, because that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, it's, it's a clear biblical fact that Christians who have received Christ have been born into the new creation. Well, they have this life. And that's the reason that they can, they can no longer excuse themselves from wrong behavior by saying, well, you know, after all, I'm only human. Well, well it's true, we are human, yet in the body, in, in the flesh, and, and that is why we're tempted. But because we also have a new life, it means we do not need to yield to that temptation. There is there's a new power from within. When we become a Christian, when we become a believer, we have a new source of power which the world doesn't know anything about. Therefore, we're, we're expected to live differently at a higher level. And we can. We, we can excuse ourselves by saying, you know, I'm, I'm only human. True, that is why temptations come. But God has given us an ability to, to say no to these and to say yes to the power of Christ. We will not feel powerful. We're never expected to, but but we have the power to say no. That is what the new creation is all about. So because our Lord is master of the old creation, the old material universe, everything around us, and also master of a whole new humanity that is now coming into being, Paul goes on to say that he is both firstborn of the old and firstborn of the new, in order that he might have the supremacy. See, there is nothing left out of Jesus's control. And that's the different that, that difference that being a Christian makes. We have Jesus Christ himself dwelling in us, and that enables us to be more than we once were. Paul now turns from, from Jesus's position as head of the body to his work as reconciler of all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace with his blood shed on the cross. That's Colossians 1, 19 through the first part of verse 20. Notice how carefully Paul links together the, the reconciling work of Christ and his holiness, his deity. Jesus had to be God to do what he did. If, if Jesus is not God, then there's no bridge that can span that huge gulf between me and God. That's why Christianity is, is so offensive to people of other faiths. They, you know, they'll say, why can't you recognize that all religions have leaders who can lead us into truth? Why do you claim that Jesus is different and above all the others? 
and, and that's often called the scandal of exclusivity, the, the exclusive claim that only one religious founder is both God and man. As C.S. Lewis states, if, if you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of, of Brahma, he would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If, if you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus, he would have laughed at you. And if you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah, he would first have rent, wrenched his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are, are you heaven? I think he would have uh, probably replied remarks which are not in accordance with nature or, or in bad taste. There is only one who claims that he is both God and man. And this explain, explains the name which the shepherds whispered when they came into the stable after the angel's announcement. They, they knelt in awe before the, the babe lying there and they breathed the one, that, that word, Emmanuel. God with us, which we spoke of not too long ago. But because Jesus is both God and man, he's able to bridge that gap, to reconcile to himself all things. This verse has been used as a proof text to, to substantiate the idea of, of universal salvation, that, that ultimately every person and every being is going to be redeemed, even the devil and his angels this concept maintains, and even the wickedness of men, Hitler, Stalin, whatever, are those who, or, or, or those far worse because of spiritual evil are someday going to be redeemed. They may be temporarily punishment, but, but eventually everything in the universe will be restored to God and, and there will be no hell and no eternal judgment. That's the teaching of, of universalism. And it is true that the word reconcile upon which the whole teaching hangs does mean salvation in, in case of those who, who believe, it is used in that sense in the very next verses where Paul goes on to say, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And that, that is clearly salvation in its fullest degree, but reconcile often means things other than salvation. This is where we must be very careful. Her, heresy creeps in places where we don't expect it. It's wrong to take a single meaning of a word and press it everywhere as its only meaning. If you look elsewhere in Scripture, you find that reconcile is, is broader than salvation. In Ephesians 2, for instance, Paul uses it for the healing of hostility between uh, the Jews and Gentiles. And he says Jesus has come and broken down the middle wall of partition and reconciled Jew and Gentile in one body, by which he means the hostility is ended. Not that every Jew and every Gentile will be saved, but they will be able to live in harmony. That, that's, that's his point. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle says that husbands and wives are to be reconciled to one another. You know, and there may be some... Husbands and wives who, who need to have their hostility end and begin to live together in peace that are, that are part of our body, right? Parents and children need reconciling at times. Friends often need it. The basic meaning of this word is to remove all impediments to peace so that harmony remains. What does it mean then that Jesus shall 
reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It means a day is coming when the hostility of evil against righteousness will be, will be brought to a sudden halt. Evil men and angels will find themselves unable to function in their, their enmity against a holy God. They will be subdued and will cease their rebellion. It does not mean that their punishment ends. It, it is their active hostility that will cease. Then at last, the terrible question that every one of us is asked at times is why does God permit evil will be answered. There's a coming day, according to this verse, when all will be explained to us. Why did the good suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does injustice reign triumphant? We, we, we've all asked those questions. Why do accidents occur, ruining our joy? Why does insanity rage in so many? At, at, at last, this question is going to be answered. At last, we will learn why it was necessary to allow evil. And then we will see it as part of the working out of God's program. Every hurt will be resolved. Every tear will be wiped away. Every pain will be relieved. At last, the whole universe will live in peace and harmony with one another. Nothing shall hurt or destroy in all of God's holy mountain. Read the great prophecies of Isaiah in this regard. What, what amazing language he employs to picture an earth where nothing is out of step, nothing eccentric, nothing out of balance, everything in harmony with everything else. That's what this declares. Surely this is what Paul is describing in, in that great passage in Philippians. An hour is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is where history is headed. And the marvelous thing about this <clears throat> is that it flows out of the death of Jesus on the cross. It is the cross that has brought this to pass. That is why it has been the central symbol of Christian faith from the very beginning. You know, we put crosses up in, our, in the sanctuary, not, not to make us think that the cross was a beautiful piece of wood. It, it was dirty, it was bloody, it was rugged. Mean, it means death, but, but out of that death flowed life to all the universe. That's what this is telling us. We find it described very clearly in chapter 2 of, of this letter in the words, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's Colossians 2.15. It is the cross that is the center of all life. Christians should, you know, we should never allow ourselves to, to forget that wonderful scene recorded in, in the book of Revelation where John is caught up in the glory and he sees the end of history and the end of human affairs. And this is how he describes it. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering the thousands upon thousands and 10,000 <clears throat> times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they said, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and that is, and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, glory, and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. That's Revelation 5, 11 through 14, and then Revelation closes with this reminder that the spirit and the bride say, come. 
And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all God's people. Amen. I want to close today by reading Romans chapter 11, verses, or verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.